Welcome to Whose Podcast Is It Anyway? A show where our host engages in a lively conversation with the guest. The guest chooses the topic and the host has no prior preparation or knowledge of the topic. Please note that the opinions expressed on this program are the opinions and views of the host and the guests and are not necessarily the same opinions and views of Al Seeger or Point of Insanity Game Studio. And now, here's your host, Chad Knight. Welcome to Whose Podcast Is It Anyway? Episode 36. Good evening and welcome to my mind there. The internet and how it impacts our lives and such type things. Now, I'll start out by saying that I am a fan of the internet, from memes and YouTube to information on all things. If one day I decide, hey, what can I find out about Chinese gorillas? It used to be that I'd have to go to the library, dig through a card catalog, yeah, I'm old enough, and probably end up with an encyclopedia. Finding out everything I ever wanted to know about Chinese gorillas could take me hours, if not days. Today, I want, if I want to know the same things and, I, and more, I simply fire up the computer or the smartphone and type in Chinese gorilla in my favorite search engine, and voila, 1,850,000 results. That took less than a second for my computer to find. What am I trying to say? That it's too easy. Example, I was talking to a fellow dad and I said something to him about, you know, something. And he said his kids didn't think they that they needed to study or spend time learning because, Dad, I can just Google it. Is the internet mentally disabling our children and teaching them that Google has all the answers? I don't know. But what I do know is that it seems to me that kids today use the easy access granted by search engines to skip the time and work it took my generation and the ones before to learn something. And I think that makes the whole idea of learning actually learning something unpalatable. Of course, gentle listener, listener, this is just my take on this. Is there a fix? I don't think so. The world is just going this way. My wish is that maybe things will change, but unfortunately they will only change in the wake of some horrible disaster that renders the internet null and void. And honestly, I find the, that and honestly, I find that idea one I really don't want to deal with. And now, don't get me wrong. I could deal without the Internet. I don't want to deal with what would cause me to be without the Internet. Now, back to looking at comics, memes, and cat videos. You know, the important stuff on the Internet. Uh, I mean, my my guest, Rick Amelsey. He was my guest all the way back on episode 10. He has agreed to come back and do this episode, and I'm sure we'll be having another great discussion on whatever his topic is. We will get to that in a bit, you know, after today in history. For right now, Rick, why don't you give us an update since the last time you were here, and, you know, let us know what you're doing these days. Well, last time I was here, I was working for the YMCA. In fact, I was late for the podcast because I ended up having a lifeguard. That's right. Since then, I no longer work for the YMCA in that capacity. And does this make you happy? Actually, it does. <laughs> I can actually now plan things and show up on time without having to worry about events taking place. Fair enough. Instead, now I work with the Wassa School District in the special ed department at one of the elementary schools, specifically working with emotional and behavioral kids. Um, it's a very interesting job. I gauge my day by the number of times that I've been told to F off or had something thrown at me during the day. Nice. So these kids are literally telling you to F off? That would be correct. Wow. And that would be a nice thing for them to tell me. Wow. Well, I mean, you do work with mentally and physically challenged kids, right? Actually, not really mentally. It's emotionally and behaviorally challenged. Okay. Okay. And so they have that as a disability where they just can't, their way of handling stress or stuff that they can't control is to kind of go crazy or lash out. And what's neat, though, is the more you learn about the background of some of these kids, you can understand why they are the way that they are. Yeah. All right. So, um, all right. So that's good. Um, we'll jump into the day in history, and then we'll uh, come back to you, and we'll talk about whatever you brought to talk about tonight. 
All right, so today in history, and of course I get all my stuff from www.history.com, this day in history, April 7th, 1805, Lewis and, Lewis and Clark depart from Fort Mandan. After a long winter, the Lewis and Clark expedition departs its camp along the, among the Mandan Indians and resume its journey west along the Missouri River. The Corps of Discovery had begun its voyage the previous spring, and it arrived at the large Mandan and Minotauri villages along the Upper Missouri River, north of present-day Bismarck, North Dakota, in late October. Once the villages, once at the villages, Meriwether Lewis and William Clark directed the men to build a sturdy log fort. The following winter was a harsh one, but the expedition had plenty of provisions. The two captains made the best of their enforced halt, making copious notes in their journals and preparing maps of their route. Most importantly, they met frequently with the local Indians, who provided them with valuable information about the mysterious country that lay ahead. As spring came to the Upper Missouri, Lewis and, Lewis and Clark prepared to resume their journey. Lewis penned a long report for President Thomas Jefferson that would be sent back down to St. Louis with 16 men traveling on the expedition's large keelboat. Although Lewis had yet to explore the, any truly unknown country, his report provided a good deal of valuable information on the Upper Missouri River region and its inhabitants. He optimistically predicted the expedition would be able to reach the Pacific and make a good start on the return journey before the coming winter. You may therefore expect me to meet you at Monticello in September 1806, he told the president. In fact, the journey was more difficult and slow than Lewis anticipated. The expedition actually spent the winter of 1805 and 1806 along the Pacific coast, and Lewis did not finally meet with Thomas Jefferson in Washington, D.C. until January 1, 1807. However, as Lewis and Clark prepared to leave Fort Mandan on this, on this day in 1805, they did not know the trials ahead and were likely filled with optimism and excitement. As the keel boat shoved off and started down the Missouri with Lewis, Lewis's report to Jefferson, the Corps of Discovery and their female guide, Sacagawea, resumed the far more difficult task of rowing their small boats upstream. That night, Lewis wrote in his journal that, Our vessels consisted of six small canoes and two large pirgues. This little fleet, although not quite as so respectable as those of Columbus or Captain Cook, were still viewed by us with as much pleasure as those deservedly famed adventurers ever beheld theirs. As Lewis began his journey into a land on which the foot of civilized man had never trodden, he proclaimed this day of departure as amongst the most happy of his life. All right, Rick, what fun and fascinating things do you have to talk about tonight? Actually, first, I want to go with anybody who wants to learn more about that history. Yeah. There's a wonderful book by Stephen Ambrose okay. called Undaunted Courage, The Voyage of Lewis and Clark. Okay, excellent. And uh, it's actually a very fun read to learn about uh, lightning pills. Lightning pills. It was their cure-all. Basically, it made you uh, vomit and uh, diarrhea to purge whatever ailed you. Wow, that sounds like fun. That was their medical uh, choice. Okay. Uh, I guess I could come up with something better. But, you know, hey, I suppose, you know, the idea was it got all the bad toxins out of you and i guess in a way it probably did and after their bouts with you know coming out of both ends they probably did feel better but uh all right so what do you got for us last time i was here i came with two topics one was about being a dad i thought yeah which, which we did and i'd also talk thought about we could do i want the subject of weight because you and i are both on like opposite ends of the spectrum okay fair enough and it's like, you know, that could be kind of fun. But then I'm like, you know, do we, is there really enough about that? But then you came up with the idea. You thought I would talk about farming or gardening. Okay, yeah, fair enough. So that's where we're going to go today. This episode is set to drop April 7th. Yep. Which is spring. And many people, if you do get into gardening or whatever, that is the time to start prepping. If you haven't already started already in planning what type of... Yeah, where, where we are, April 7th, usually you're not in the ground yet, but... You might be starting things under grow lights if you're that energetic, or maybe planning out what you might want to do. Yeah, like this year, I know my wife, my wife wants to do container gardens, 
So she might already be doing these things. So I don't know. I don't know how a container garden works. I don't know how a regular garden works. All I know is as a kid, I spent a lot of time pulling weeds. And and then at the end of the year, you got to pick all the cool stuff. You know, the, the cucumbers and the carrots and the potatoes and the all that kind of stuff. But my parents actually did all the planting and stuff. They just, you know, we were just the, the uh, hired help in quotation marks. Um, but... Uh, you know, so yeah, what do you what do you want to talk about gardening? Do you have certain things you want to talk about? So first, I was much the same way. I grew up. It's like dad rode it tilled, and we as kids got to help plant, and then it was go out and pull weeds and pull weeds. And then at the end, yeah, you started to finally after start with the spring onions, picking those, and then going to the peas and the the fun stuff. Right. Yeah. I also. Where I lived for a while, we then went out in the mean during the season and we picked wild blueberries, blackberries, and raspberries. Yeah, we used to do that too. We'd go pick wild berries. My dad always knew the places to go. And you know, it's actually kind of sad because I've went back to some of those places as an adult and the berries are gone. You know, and I don't know if it's a matter of, you know, progress. I, in some of the places, it's progress. You know, people have built homes or whatever. It used to be country, now it's homes. But there are places where. I don't know what happened because the roads are the same. You know, there's nobody living there. Nine Mile Swamp is where I'm thinking of off the top of my head. We used to go out there and along the roads, you could almost stop anywhere and pick blackberries. And now they're not there. I don't know where they've gone. Could be multiple different reasons, cutting, whatever else that they're doing. So I started out when I lived, my wife and I moved to a rural area decided to do have a garden what the heck not a big deal and i planted much the same way okay and i hated pulling weeds and just nothing grew so then finally i worked at a library i saw this book um called how to grow more fruit and vegetables on less land than you thought possible okay yeah and i think that's kind of what my wife's going with this whole uh doing it in the uh containers containers yeah so and Authors John Jeevans, and the one thing that they talked about is intensity and plant where planting your plants as close as possible in raised beds. So loose soil so that the roots can go down, but then you can, instead of like trying to spread along hard ground, but then you have them so close to each other that they're forced to grow up and it blocks out the light then getting down eventually to your weeds. Okay, now my question with, the, with that would just be the simple one of, is there going to be kill because too many plants too close together? So what you do is you do a raised bed. So his suggestion is a 20 by 5 foot. Okay. So about 100 square feet. Okay. And that's what I started out with my first year. So your peas, you plant about four inches apart. You start them early, and then you just plant the seedlings about four inches apart. So they're already started, and then they're going to support each other. No, they really they, they never had that issue of them choking each other out okay. because they just had that space. Beans, they suggest six inches, and it's a lot of intense because you have to dig up this whole area and loosen up the soil, and then you have to plant it. In fact, my wife at the time thought it was really weird when I went and got a sheet of plywood for planting the garden because once... <laughs> Once you have your bed dug, you can't step on it. Okay. So what you do is you need you need a planting board that you would put across so it would spread your weight out. Okay. Okay. And then you could plant. And by doing that way, I got yeah a lot of vegetables and stuff on a very small area. And you start out by planting like lettuce. Okay. Yeah. Right. Right there lettuce gets done really quickly as soon as your lettuce is done you pull that out and you throw some beans in that spot okay so, so the the growth the, the the time of growth for these plants are different right okay so lettuce is special is done as it gets hot because lettuce is a cold weather plant. well and lettuce and doesn't take that long to grow either right 15 20 days it takes a little bit, a little bit longer yeah i mean you're going to get something and then you can start harvesting especially leaf lettuce I'm not right. talking like your head lettuce right right and some of your spring onions yeah you can plant them really closer all done a couple weeks you're yanking them out same with some radishes and then you 
puts them right in that spot. So the idea is if you're in a city lot or you don't have a lot of space, here's something that you can get a lot of fresh vegetables from. Okay, and that makes sense. Another person who I read a lot and got to enjoy, um, Joel Salatin, who runs uh, Polyface Farms. Okay. And the guy actually grows more meat per acre and using less resources than the big mega farms or the feedlots that they use for finishing a beef or chickens. Okay. So when you say he grows more meat, you mean right. literally meat. Yeah, like, but what he does is he doesn't specify in one thing. Okay. So what he'll do is he'll run his cows through an area, and he believes in letting the animalness of the animal. Okay. So he runs his cow through an area, and three or four days later, he sent, he brings his chickens in. Well, in those three or four days, that's when the flies are... have the larvae from are starting to hatch in the manure piles. Okay. Well, then you got your chickens that are scratching and throwing and spreading the manure for you while they're eating the bugs. Okay. So this kind of, it, it does, it's a cycle thing. Right. So he'll go cow to chicken to whatever. He's got pigs running through his woods. He's got, and he'll also use that to, he'll throw corn in the manure piles as it's growing in the winter when he doesn't have his cattle out and then he sends his pigs through there to look for the fermented corn and then that also turns over some of the manure which then he throws has straw mix in then he plants his garden in there okay wow does he use the pigs to find his truffles too i have no clue <laughs> well, no, i haven't read that in any of his books yet but he talks about he talks about having a salad garden okay which is actually something that i tried and will be bringing back and it does nicely for containers and that's just something right outside your front or back door. Okay. That you can have lettuce, radishes, whatever. And you just, rather than most people, myself included, put your garden way in the far back corner of your yard so, you know, you have the area next to you to do whatever. Right. Well, then it's like it's, I got to walk all the way back there to go get whatever vegetables for dinner. And you'd rather not do that. Especially at the end of a hard day's work where if you could just step right outside your back door and right there is this small little container garden or whatever and you just pick the few things you want for your lot for your salad then you're done you're done okay that makes sense so now i know you do gardening um what is do you grow everything from lettuce to corn and everything in between i do not really do corn anymore unless my kids really want to try some okay and the reason for that is Corn is the big space waster. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Corn needs about a foot. And when you're trying to grow as much as you can in a small area, and you've got to leave a foot between each corn stalk, it takes up a lot of space. Yeah, I remember and, that was that was always like half of the, the garden when I was a kid. You know, my dad, we our garden was probably 50 by 100. Okay. I mean, it was a big garden, and half of that was corn. You know, and, uh, I mean, we used a lot of corn. My mother canned corn. Uh, we do corn. And then every year my dad and my mom would have this big party, and that was the main thing we served was corn off the off the grill, you know, because we had so much of it. Right. <laughs> um, no, I'm not saying that. I just, when I'm trying to get as much as I can for canning or freezing, that's just. Yeah, when you, yeah. It's, you're it's, in a city lot, you only have so much space. Yep. Yeah, and I've got the same problem. We're in a city lot. In fact, we're in a city lot that we share with with the uh, neighbors uh, because we're in a duplex. So, uh, you know, my wife had a garden in the backyard, which has now grown over because finally the last couple of years I've gotten her to realize that she plants this stuff. She spends the money, plants this stuff, and then she gets so busy in the summer that it just ends up being a weed garden that we just get very little out of. So that's why this year she wants to try the container thing because she can leave them right outside in the front or the back and just, you know. Pick what you want. Pick what you want. And then there's not going to be as many weeds because there's going to be less space for the weeds to grow in. That's right. That's all. And that's why I got into the, the biointensive gardening was so that there wouldn't be that space. Now talking about corn, I haven't tried it yet, but there's also the corn is part of the three sisters. Okay. Is what it's known as. 
And there is a way to plant it where you have your corn started. And then what you do is you plant a bean plant right next to the corn stalk. Oh, and then you use the corn stalk to... To climb the bean. Okay. And then what you also do is inside of that, or just outside of that, you'll throw your squash. Because your squash has vines, and so then that'll run along the ground. And so you'll have no... That'll also do ground cover to help fight your weeds. Okay. And also, so you've got that whole space being used. I have yet to try the Three Sisters system, but... Are you going to do that this summer? I don't know if I'm ready for that one yet. Okay, okay. Now, when you say bio-intensive, that's just where you're talking about where you use the, the closeness of planting to cut down on the amount of weeds. Right. Okay. You're trying to mimic what nature would do. You don't have in nature a whole bunch of oak trees. You don't have a whole bunch, like a whole, like, just... Right. Uh, you have other stuff on the ground. You have other stuff. So you're trying to use as much of the space as possible. Um, another, try, I can't remember right now what the name of the, it is, but uh, Gaia's Garden is the name of the book. Okay. It talks also a lot about doing that type of planting and using different systems that complement each other. Okay. Because that's one of the problems that we have with the weeds is if nothing's there, something's going to grow. And all a weed is is a plant that we don't necessarily want. Right. It's it's not a useful plant to us. Right. You know, it's I think technically isn't isn't uh, grass can technically a weed? Yes, it is. That's what I thought. So it's a first generation growth thing. So therefore, biointensive, you're trying to put as much usefulness or what you want into that area so that you don't have what you don't want coming up. Which are weeds. <laughs> right. And also by doing the biointensive, if you think about it right now, you plant, you have your row, you right. have a foot on each side, or a foot and a half of walk space for yourself, then you have another row. So in a five foot area, you've only got like three rows of usable space and walk space. Two two and a half, three feet of walk space. Okay. So this way, by cramming it all together in those beds, I started out one year, I had one bed. It worked well. By the end of it, I had 700 square foot beds that I was planting. So now, how many are you up to now? Now I'm going to be going back to one now that I'm in my current house that I'm okay. in. I haven't had a garden in a couple of years because the place we bought... Uh, people had gardened there and completely destroyed the life out of the soil. They didn't put anything back into it. So I spent the last couple of years just re-putting the life back into it. I planted a couple things. And now this year I finally have enough organic material back in that I'm ready to try. If you hear those footsteps, that's my family coming home. <laughs> but, uh, okay, so... No, I didn't have 700 square feet of... You know, wrote just plants that would you'd grow and die. I only had like a couple beds like that, and another one I had a whole bunch of annual herbs. So I had an herb one that I could just go out. All right, and they're gonna okay. come up every year. year. Yeah. I had another one with strawberries. Okay, that makes sense. Now, how did you do, doing this this uh, eco-intensive gardening? How do you deal with things that um, you know, some things need shade, some things need kind of need shade, some things need more sun. Does does the way you plant things uh, impact that? You look at what you have around you. So one thing I did is I need, had some stuff that needed uh, some shade. I put a couple of apple trees in that area. Okay. And apple trees grow pretty quick, don't they? Not really, but they give enough shade for the little bit that you need or okay. you plan for... What things? For the most part, what we want to plant for a vegetable summer, want sun. Right. Um, you also learn to do companion planting. Want things grow really well next to each other. So if you're growing tomato plants, they do really well if you plant basil right next to them. Oh, okay. I don't know why, but okay. Which is really great then when you want to make sauces or whatever else, because a lot of those things, you, you want basil. Right, in your tomato sauce. In your tomato sauce. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, peppers grow well with tomatoes. 
again, most people put peppers in their tomato sauce. So one thing you don't do is you don't throw potatoes near them. They don't seem to do as well together. Okay, they don't they don't play well. Right. Okay. And so there's different there's actually lists out there on companion planting of what to put next to each other so that they'll actually support each other. Okay. And that makes sense. So um now when you're talking about things that go together or don't go together, um do you know why potatoes and tomatoes don't play nice? It's what they both take out of the soil. So it comes down to what what's what being they put in to okay. The soil. Okay. So like what's coming either what the tomato plant is extracting or putting back could be toxic to the potato or vice versa. Right. And what you also do is you then need to rotate. You can't plant the same kind of like in farming. You can't plant corn every year in the same spot because it's going to take whatever out. Eventually, you have to plant have right. to put wheat there for a few years. Same thing with this style of gardening. You plant, and then I actually mapped out each one of my beds and what I planted in each section. So that the next year you could rotate. So I could rotate through. Okay. Now, what is your thought on things like when the season's done and the plant, you know, especially like tomato plants, things like that are still there? I mean, you've taken the tomatoes, but the actual plant is still there. Are you one that will till that into the soil? Or do you pull those things? Or is there a right or wrong way to do that? What it's what style are you wanting to do? For biointensive, you're going to pull it and you're going to lay it right down in the spot. Okay, so you're going to pull it and just let it die there. Let it die there. Okay. Now, the other part with biointensive, especially with the deep beds, you don't till that. Anything you're going to do is going to be hand done. Because tilling up the soil actually destroys... Yeah, it gets air in there, which allows for quick... But a lot of the healthy microbes and other stuff that are in the soil, that was what we really want overall, are then killed. Okay, so you're going to do it by what? Using an old hay fork or something? Yep, shovel and hay fork or whatever else just to kind of give it a little break up. Or what's even better is you can just plant, loosen everything up and plant what's right in there. Okay. All right. Um, like I said, gardening is not one of our strong points, so I'm... I'm trying to think of things to talk about here, so, but and 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 I brought you know some other things to talk about. Like another thing I did is raspberries are great. A lot of people love raspberries, and I know my parents have a couple rows of raspberries which they're perfectly happy with. They get it's about a three foot by thirty foot area that they have two rows of in their backyard, and. They get enough raspberries for themselves. They can freeze some, and they're perfectly. And what's nice about them is it's not a lot of work. Yeah, I you mean, once through, the bush you, is there, it's right. You cut the cane off when it's dead and let whatever grow and mow down. Now I was lucky enough; I had the space. I had a 17 by 20 foot raspberry patch. Okay, that's a lot of raspberries. I'm guessing it was a lot of raspberries, especially when everbearing when you get two, um, two ripenings per season. Oh wow. So I actually, in that area, would collect enough raspberries that, and we would we'd eat what we wanted, and we'd freeze a bunch. And then also in November, because we wore out during the season from canning everything else, we would take out our frozen raspberries, and we would make five gallons of jam every year. Oh, okay. I was just going to ask about that, because, uh, you know, that was one thing my mother always did. She would make strawberry jam and raspberry jam and blackberry jam and... Because it just got to the point where she had done all this stuff with them, and they were still there. Still there, right. And I'm, I'm not saying it's not time-consuming. I mean, all this stuff does take time. So you've got to, with working and everything else, you've got to gauge what you're doing. But for me, it's we picked it, and that's why we waited till November, because we were exhausted from everything else. We were not going to try to cook it all then. Right, right. Um, the other thing we do is, right before Mother's Day, I would then dig up every other roll, because... They run and they're multiplying. I'd dig up every other row and I'd sell them on Craigslist and we'd bring in two to three hundred dollars a year. Just the raspberry plants? Just selling raspberry plants. That's not a bad idea though. And I know I could have made a lot more, but I only sold it for twenty bucks for twelve plants. Go to Walmart and you're gonna pick up one plant for five bucks. Okay. Three on sale. There you go. Alright. Um so. All right, so raspberries, did you do 
Did you have a blackberry patch, or was it just raspberries? I did raspberries and strawberries there. Okay. Um, blackberries, we had a hard time finding. Um, I did a bunch of, so I just never got into them. I've tried them. They're not bad, but there's enough. I know enough blackberry patches wild that I can go pick if I want blackberries. Okay. Um, so getting back to, like you're talking about your wife with container gardens. Yeah. There's so many different things you can do there. Um, so you can, there's the hanging tomato plants that she could do. Yeah. Well, that's one of the things she wants to do in the, in the containers is our, our big vegetables here are cucumbers, tomatoes, uh, peppers, and onions. Mm -hmm. Those are the, those are the four big ones that we use a lot of zucchini. Um, but I'm always wary when she goes, I want to plant zucchini because zucchini never ends, ever. Garrison Keeler had a wonderful joke that the only time Lutherans locked their doors at church was when zucchinis were ripe. Because if you, went, if you didn't lock your door at church, when you came out, there would be bags of zucchinis sitting in your... Yep. You know, and my dad used to... That was one of the things my parents grew was zucchini... Um, and acorn squash and any type of squash. And now acorns didn't, weren't quite as bad because they're a hard squash, but you know, zucchini, yeah, uh, summer squash or yellow squash, those things just, they don't stop, you know? And it's like, you can only make so much zucchini bread and you can only make so much, you know, whatever. And it's like, what do you do with these? And then you start trying to give them away and nobody wants them. Cause you know, back then anyway, everybody had a garden where, right. where I grew up. And depending on the squash, you can actually some of them store really well. Yeah, the hard the hard, hard squashes ones. do. Yeah. I used to store. We lived in a mobile home. I stored butternut squash under my bed. I can see that. It was dark, cool enough. I just okay. Let's have let's go pull one out from under the bed. It's really interesting. The day my three year old crawled under the bed and was coming out with the squash, but hey. Hey, well you know the kid likes squash. It's got good taste. Because you know acorn squash is actually one of my favorite squashes. Mm -hmm. um I, it's it's uh it's a yellow squash when it's cooked it's nice and um uh, i could say soft but that's not the word i'm looking for it's got a nice silky flavor to it it's you know it's a smooth squash it's not a really pungent squash and it's not a no taste squash and you throw a little butter a little salt and pepper oh, yeah. on that thing that's all you need it's wonderful so you talked about cucumbers yep a nice, easy way is to do vertical cucumbers with a trellis. Okay, they'll actually climb a trellis? They will climb a trellis. Okay. And then they will be hanging down. Might be easier to pick them. It's a lot easier to pick them. You don't have to bend over. <laughs> you know, I might actually bring this one up to her. You know, say, hey, plant your cucumbers in here and we'll grab a couple, a piece of trellis. So that... It's got to be like a wooden trellis frame. Right. So that they can then. You know, that's not a bad idea. Actually, one of my neighbors planted pumpkins, and the pumpkins started climbing their trees. So you walked out, and you looked, and about six feet up their tree was a pumpkin. Really? It didn't get too heavy to fall off? No. Or pull the vine down? No, it just... Wow. It was wrapped well enough that it just... It was really cool to watch, this pumpkin growing about six feet up a tree. How big did it get? It got to be about four to six inches area. So not a huge pumpkin, right. but still... Still, four to six, that's like the size of a volleyball. Yeah. You know. So that's not a tiny pumpkin either. No. And I've also seen butternut squash hanging from tree branches. Okay. And any of those running viney plants, you can train to go up. Interesting. So help save space. Why have it run out? Right. So we could do cucumbers that way. She could, I mean, beans and um, peas kind of do that. You have to do that with. Right. Um, Unless you but, do bush. Right. Um, now, tomatoes, will they climb? Or don't they, they? I suppose they don't really, they're not really a vine, though. They no, kind of look like one, but they're not really one. They're not a vine, but you can do hanging tomato plants. Yeah, I've seen those where, um, well, they were selling them on TV for a while. Uh, yeah, but I've seen them at, like, Menards and stuff, too. You can buy them. And tomato plants are easy enough to, you can let them do that, or you can just put them in your container and throw a pepper plant or a basil plant in next to it. That way you've got multiple things coming out of this same pot. Yeah, and that was one of the things I told her is, you know, make sure you find out which um, which plants need shade and which ones need sun, and then plant those together because then the ones that need shade, you just set so they're in the shade with, you know, the amount of time they need it. 
because you know our front yard we got the big tree out there so you just got to put stuff where you want it mm -hmm. so um and we have a big tree in the backyard too so whichever way she decides to go front or backyard it'll work um but uh that yeah i you know i i don't have a problem with her gardening i mean fresh vegetables are so much nicer than going to the store to buy them uh, but those are still even so much nicer than buying them in a can. Uh, but you know, we do a lot of the stuff at the, at the farmer's market. And I'm like, if she wants to do this and actually does it and it works, that'll save us money from the farmer's market. Cause as great as the farmer's market is, it gets kind of expensive real fast. The one thing that I, I, I love farmer's markets. I do too. Uh, the one thing that I, my challenge with farmer's markets is the tendency because of what the food corporations have taught us things should look like is what you're going to find at the farmer's market. Okay, explain. So if you go to buy tomatoes at a farmer's market, you're going to get, for the most part, either Romas or... Big beef eaters. Beef tomatoes. Maybe you'll get cherry tomatoes. Okay. Okay. I love zebra tomatoes. I'm not sure what a zebra tomato is. It's a yellow tomato when ripe. That has green stripes. Okay. Now, I have seen those at farmer's markets. But it's a rare thing. Yeah. And we bought purple I also, tomatoes one time. I also like purple carrots. Yep, I've had there purple is, carrots. There is a really sweet watermelon that is a neon yellow on the inside when it's ripe. Really? And this is stuff that it's all heirloom variety. Right, right. And... The one thing that you get, like a lot of the plate, seeds you buy, have a genetic killer in it so that you can't save the seeds for the next year. So if you are going to buy seeds, I like looking for heirloom variety because then if you really like that plant, you can save the seeds for your following year. You're not having to buy seeds. So now what makes a plant an heirloom? It's going to be straight the way that it was. It doesn't... A lot of our seeds now... That are sold in the packets they have been genetically engineered so that they will produce a lot or a decent amount of um, the vegetable or the fruit but then it's got a killer in it that all those seeds will not produce okay now here's so like if you got a pea right you could open up the piece save the piece from the insides because that's your seed right and then plant them the next year. So you could do that with an heirloom variety, an but heirloom. not most of what you buy. Right. There's Some of it will work, but for the most part, they have that killer in it so that you only get that one generation. And that's just that's just a sheer money thing. Correct. Because otherwise, you're not going to go buy seeds next year. Right. Okay. Now, one question I've always had, and I don't know. I mean, I know it's been genetically modified in such a way that you get things that are seedless. So you have seedless watermelons, seedless cucumbers, and things like that. How do they keep getting seeds for these things? It's the whole, you, you get them from... The seeded variety. The seeded variety, but you they've done whatever with it to, so that it, they, as they grow, you're going to get some seeds. And if you think about your seedless watermelons, have seeds. They just don't get the black and hard. They stay the, the yellow, the white and soft. Right. So, and Which, just like seedless cucumbers, or um, I think they're called English cucumbers a lot around here, they still have seeds in them. They're just not or they're what you're used to. Are they hybrids of two different types? One that has very few seeds, and one that you, we're used to, like the big red watermelons that we like. So, you got a hybrid. So, now when we talk about seeds, now I know there's a place in one of the Scandinavian countries where they have this big vault of seeds. So if anything ever happens to the world, in theory, this place will be used to reseed the world. Do you know anything about this place? Yeah, read about that, and I've actually seen some news stories about it. Okay, now is the is that the only one in the world, or is there? No, actually, it's it's the main one. Okay, but and here in Wisconsin, uh, through the university system, there are all sorts of seeds that you could go. And pick up or buy from or from all different places have their storage in fact one part of the beauty of the uh, University of Wisconsin uh, County Extension program mm -hmm. long ago was that because we didn't have all these different pesticides or whatever that could be put in the seeds for growing 
So let's say you've got whatever type of year, whatever type of pest coming in, you could go to the county extension and be like, here, here's the type of seeds that you should be planting this year because this is what we're dealing with and they're resistant to this. Oh, okay. Because I remember one time when we were, when I was a kid and we lost most of a corn crop due to, um, uh, what were they called? Uh, not boils, but um, some sort of purple. Just a blight. Yeah, blight. It was it was just the grossest thing, and if you touched it, it kind of oozed everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was just one of those things, you know. Dad cut down all the stocks, threw them in a fire, because that's what they were supposed to do to get rid of it and whatever. But, you know, it was a lost – it was an entire lost crop of corn. There was no corn that year. Um, but And by genetically modifying, a lot of that stuff has gone away. Correct. But then you get the backside, which is the problem that everything looks the same and nothing has any real taste to it. Correct. So then that's where you have a lot of these heirloom variety that have a lot more flavor. They look different. Right. They're not going to look perfect. You know, actually, I love the look of heirloom tomatoes. They're beautiful. I mean, some of them are striped and some of them are, you know, yeah. whatever. And I like the flavor of them. Um, they're, they have more acid in them, I think, than like your store-bought tomatoes. But... You know, depending on the person, it doesn't bother me, but like one of my daughters, it bothers her stomach. And again, it's going to depend on the variety. I mean, there's so many different varieties of heirloom tomatoes to just put them all in one. So that's why, in looking at that, the one place where I have found that you can get a lot of this weird stuff for heirloom is if you go to a CSA. CSA is a community-supported agriculture. Yep. And... That is where you pay a fee up front to say you're investing in the farm. The better the farm does. The more food you get. The more food. And every week or whatever you get so much. Yeah, my wife and I were actually talking about doing one of those this summer. And then she got this idea of the container garden. So I don't know which way we're going to go. I'm thinking she's leaning more towards the container garden because she does like doing that kind of stuff. She likes getting out and playing in the dirt and that kind of stuff. And I'd rather hole up in my basement and talk to people on the on the internet, but you know we each have the things we like. So. So now what I when I when I was doing when I had my all my gardening was doing all that when I lived in Kiel, I also had a worker's share at a local CSA. Okay. So that was where then I could get my corn and other stuff that I just didn't want to take the time the to space in, and I'd go and I was required to. Put in a couple hours a week, and for that I would get so food, much, so much, so much vegetables right. or whatever else. It was also nice is at the time I was raising chickens. Okay. And then anything that was kind of old or whatever, I was allowed to take back and feed your chickens. Feeding my chickens. So now you raise chickens. Did you raise them for eggs? Did you raise them for meat? Or yes. yes? Okay. So now. What I wish, and some of the areas like Was and some of the other communities are allowing people to have backyard chickens. And to me, four backyard chickens is a brilliant thing that if anybody is willing to put into it, a wonderful thing. You get eggs, if you figure you're going to get about two eggs every three days out of a hen. Okay. So if you have four hens, you're getting like a dozen eggs at least a week. And how... How long will a will a hen lay eggs? From about six months for the rest of her life. The problem is, is once you get past that second year, the amount of food you're putting into the hen isn't worth the, the amount eggs of eggs you're, you're getting out. out. So then, do then, the eggs go down in quality, or is it just the numbers go down? The numbers. Okay. So then you get to the point that you have to make the determination: Are your chickens, are your hens, a pet, or are they there for? The eggs. The eggs and then the drumsticks. Right. Well, in actuality, after two years, you don't want to eat that meat. It's a stew bird. Oh, okay. Um, once most chickens are past eight to ten weeks old, they're a stew bird. Really? They get tough that quickly? They get tough that quickly. So your roaster chickens, anything you get in the store, they've only lived at most eight weeks, maybe ten weeks. Really? I was not aware of that. Okay. So uh, that's why I would – I had no problem. I had some friends. We'd all order our meat birds together, and we'd 
plan a party for about eight, nine weeks later to have just butcher them all up and do about 200 birds. Wow. Yeah, we used to do that when I was a kid too. That was another thing my parents did is we would, um, we had a friend who was a farmer. And so once a year we'd go out there and, well, actually we'd go out there twice a year. Once was to slaughter the countless chickens. Um, and then the other time we'd go out and do pigs. Okay. Um, and I remember one year I was, uh, I just went through hunter safety. So we're going out to get the pigs and what they would do is they'd shoot the pigs with a 22, you know, on the back of the head or whatever to kill them. And, uh, they're like, here, you shoot the pig. And all I managed to do was shoot the pig and piss it off. So <laughs> there was part of the, they would give me a hard time because then there was a small part of the pig because I shot it with a 22 that you couldn't eat. You know, right. they had to cut out basically. But, uh, yeah, all I managed to do was shoot a pig in the ass and piss it off. So, um, I that. I've never been a hunter. I mean, I went through hunter safety because I thought it was a cool idea at the time, you know, and I went hunting a few times with my dad and I went hunting a few times. Actually, I tried it again. I went hunting, I think for four years with Nikki's dad. And, uh, I ended up sitting in the blind sleep until noon you know, and then they'd wake you up and you got to go in and have lunch. And I'd go out in the afternoon and sit there. And it's like, I saw deer, but I never really wanted to shoot them. I don't mind eating a deer somebody shot. Don't get me wrong. But it's just not my thing. I'd rather sit there and watch the deer that, than shoot it. In my entire time hunting, I shot at one deer. I was up on a ridge. I was shooting a, uh, I think it was a 20, no, must have been a 12 gauge uh, slugs, you know, throwing slugs. Mm -hmm. And this deer walks in, head down, wind's coming from behind the deer. So it doesn't get any better. You know, so he's coming in at me straight on, so I'm just waiting for him to turn. And while I'm waiting for him to turn, I'm sitting there counting horns because he had a rack on him. And he turned, and I was at 10 or 11 horns already. And I'm, you know, I'm sitting there, and I'm like shaking. shaking, and I shoot. And this deer's backside goes down. I'm like, I'm like, you know what happened is I, I'm like, I shot him in the ass. I'm going to track them all day, and we're not going to get deer out of it anyway, right? So my dad comes up over the ridge. He was hunting on the other side of the ridge, and he goes, did you get him? And I said, I said, I think I flanked him, and my dad had a few choice words. Um, so we walked down to where, you know, and it was a warm, it was a warm fall, and uh, so there was a little snow in the trees, but it was mostly just mud. Mm -hmm. We walked down there, and sure enough, you can see right where the deer planted his rump, you know, boom, and there was hair everywhere. So we're looking around for blood and we're not finding blood anywhere. And we're like, how is that possible? You know? And then my dad starts laughing and I said, what's so funny? He goes, you didn't hit him. I said, I had to have hit him. I'm like, there's half a deer's worth of hair out here. You know, it's just hair everywhere. He's got the seat there and he takes out his, his hunting knife and he goes up to this tree and he starts digging in there and he pops the, the slug out of the tree. So I must've grazed the back of this thing, but I killed the tree. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> Woo! So, the other reason I like backyard chickens besides the eggs yep. is for gardening. The you, manure? Well, you've got that. Like, you mix that with the straw that you use for their bedding. But, like, for my strawberries, I would take my chickens or my raspberries. I'd take them out, and a couple times a year, I would let them go through my raspberry beds. And they, through their scratching and cleaning, they would fertilize, and they'd loosen up the soil, and they'd clean every clean oh, out okay. the weeds and everything out from underneath my raspberries for me. Well, here's another question. Now, with chickens, does that cut down on the amount of mosquitoes and those kind of pests, or does it increase that because of the additional feces and things? Well, mosquitoes are not going to do much for well, other pests. There's, if you let them have your yard, they're scratching, they're pulling up weeds for you and eating bugs and whatever else that they can find in the ground. And I just want something that's going to take care of the mosquitoes. Believe it or not, I do live in town, but our backyard is horrible. Have we considered a bat house? I don't like bats. They're scary. No, they're not really scary, but... Or grasshoppers. Grasshoppers will eat mosquitoes? I believe so, yeah. Huh. I did not know that. Where do you buy grasshoppers? That I don't know. <laughs> well, I know about the kind of drink. Oh. Hey, those are good, too. So, but you can eat on the whole Joel Salton thing that I talk about, using an animal to do what it naturally does to help you. Right. So my thought was I would go out and I'd be digging up 
my gardener, I'd be pulling stuff up, and it's like, well, rather than having to, you know, pull some stuff out or what, or if I've had pests, like, why am I doing all this work when I can bring my chickens in here? Yeah, just let a dozen chickens go. Let my chickens do exactly what I all want right. them to do. The other thing I tried one year, chickens are easy. Chickens okay. are easier than dogs. Well, okay, I can believe it, because all you got to really do is feed and water them, and they do everything else on their right. own. And the other thing is, they put themselves to bed at night. They know where they need to go to roost. Right. All right? Not much to that. Now, how long does it take them? Okay, let's say let's say you have a baby chicken. You get a, a chick. chick. Okay. All right? And you put the chick out in the hen house with all the hens and the chickens and whatever lives out there. All right. How long does it take them to know where they need to go to roost? A couple days. Really? And will the other chickens help them? Actually, the other chickens will try to kill them. Why? Because they're not part of the flock, so you have to introduce them slowly. Okay. So... Now, if you want to throw chicks in there, you hope you get a broody... And I did this. You get a broody hen. You give her fake eggs to sit on for a couple weeks. And then you throw the chicken? Then when the chicks come, you go in at night, you pull the eggs out, you shove the, the live chicks underneath the hen, and then she'll raise and take care of them for you. So, chickens aren't that smart? Well, pretty hens obviously aren't. Okay, okay. I did it multiple times. I I even started doing it with my meat chicks. Rather than me having a fight to make sure temperature and everything was good, i just get a couple hens that wanted to go broody, and I'd let them do that right before. Okay. And then I then they would raise my meat. They would protect them. They'd take care of them. So now when a chicken lays eggs that actually get fertilized, and they're going to have chicks from them, Yeah. do they continue to lay eggs? They will lay until they get what they figure is a decent clutch, six, seven eggs. Okay. And they'll do whatever a day, and they'll just let them. If you don't pick them, they'll... They'll sit on them. They'll sit on them, and about three weeks later... So they, now, well, this is going to sound kind of stupid, but how does an egg get fertilized? A rooster. Well, I know a rooster, but I mean, at what... Is it is it fertilized Before. before? Oh, so they they actually do copulate in some oh, yes. form. Okay. Yes, a rooster will do a will do a dance before the hen. Okay. Before. So like a lot of like a lot of wild animals, they will do some sort of a mating ritual. And yeah, and then he'll jump on and go for a ride and All right. hop off when he's done. Now I had a couple of roosters because I wanted to repopulate my what I had. Mm-hmm. And we had one rooster that was the rooster was great. Now. They crow all day. There is no just crowing in the morning. It's all day. Okay. Whenever but do they, they feel like it. But when the sun goes down, do they shut up? Yes. Well, then it's okay. It's still better than a dog. So, the one thing nice about a rooster is they will protect their hens. Like, anything come in, they were that rooster was trying to get between it and his ladies. If I tossed food out, the rooster was calling the hens over, and they ate before he ate. Really? If uh, one of the hens, like the group was off, and one hen was like started calling because she couldn't figure out where everybody else was, he would go running over, get the hen, and bring her back to the rest of the group. So he had a harem. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, in, in exchange, yeah, he would dance and take a ride pretty much whenever he felt like it, but... So then, but not all eggs that are out are are uh, fertilized. Yeah. So, is there a way to tell a difference? And does it matter early on? No, it doesn't matter. Okay. If you're going to collect it, who cares? If you're going to be eating them, does it matter if it's fertilized or not? It doesn't put a difference in the taste. No, that's... I, and then how long does it have to be fertilized before it's just an egg versus, you know... And I remember this happening once when we were kids, and this was long before they did a lot of the, you know, the light testing and stuff. We cracked an egg, or it might have came from my aunt's hen house too. We, we, who knows? But we cracked the egg, we pop it open, and there's like basically a small chick in there that was just never born. If you're collecting the eggs right away, that's not going to happen. Okay. Basically, that meant that 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 was a fertilized egg that a hen sat on for a while. Now, how long do they have to sit before the little chick comes out? Three weeks. So it takes 21 days. Yeah. So that, that, that egg was probably somewhere like 15 to somebody 18 forget, days. Or... Somebody forgot to go collect egg. Okay. Or okay. they were just playing a cruel joke on you. 
No, not, if it came from my aunt's hen house, that it would not be the. She was very much. She she had chickens. She was a gardener. I mean, she was very much into you know living off the land. I don't think, and she didn't have a sense of humor. Um, as much as as much as I love my aunt, and she's she passed away here a couple months ago, but I mean that was her thing. She she did her chickens. She did her garden, and you know. So I don't think it was a cruel joke, but it could have possibly been overlooked and then found at another time. But so now chickens are easy. Okay. Turkeys, on the other hand, turkeys are, are pain in the ass and freaking mean. <laughs> they are mean, 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 mean birds. I attempted to raise turkeys. I'm sorry. Um, bought three, bought a, a tom and two hens. Two hens, and the hens eventually laid eggs, and I got nine. Turkey uh, eggs. Turkeys out of them. Oh, okay. Out of, out of the however many eggs they laid. Um, actually, I got eleven little turkeys, but the one hen got freaked out and she stomped two of her okay little ones to death. And yeah, no, I had to chase. I, I had to go in every morning and chase them out of the pen. They wouldn't just come out. And every night I had to go and chase them from wherever they thought they were going to be. Into their pen. Into their pen. Wow. Yeah, I had an uncle who raised turkeys for a couple of years, and after a while, he was just like, that's enough of this shit. He was just done. Because they're mean. They will attack you. I mean, chickens will too. Right. But turkeys actually have something behind the attack, <laughs> you know, weight-wise. I mean, you look at a chicken versus a turkey, and a turkey's going to kick a chicken's ass. I mean, Correct. you know. Now, so we had the, t the time was kind of mean. And he would go after my son, who was like three, four years old. And that so can be a problem. It would. And we had a, every time he went in the pens with me, I made him take a piece of lath, like a four-foot piece of lath. To smack the birds? <laughs> well, that was how we would, I would hold the lath out wide in each hand, and he would come with me so oh, okay. that we could then push them in. One day he was just swinging the lath around, playing, and the turkey, the time decided to come attack him. And as he swung it around, he clocked the bird in the head by complete accident. Tom never went after him again. <laughs> so turkeys are smarter than chickens. Well. Or at least that Tom was. That Tom. <laughs> All right, man. I think this is a good place to call this one. Um, so next week, um, I have a buddy of mine. name is Ryan Schwartzman. Now, I met Ryan back when I th – I think I met Ryan back when I opened up my uh, gaming store, Chatham Games. Uh, he was a fellow game store owner with his store, Dork Fathers, about 30 miles away in Merrill, Wisconsin. Um, Ryan and I get along pretty good, and since neither of us have the game store anymore, uh, we don't see each other quite as much as we we would like to, I think. However, he will be in studio next week to talk about whatever it is he wants to talk about. All right. Uh, ever thought to yourself, hey, I think it would be really cool to be a guest on this podcast. I wonder how to do that. Or thought these podcasts are awesome. I wish I knew how to tell them. Well, today is your lucky day. That's right. You have two options on how to do either of those things. You can email us at whosepodcastisit at gmail.com. Or you can check us out on Facebook at whosepodcastisit anyway. I look forward to hearing from you. So as we do every week, we're going to wrap up with quote of the day. And today's quote is... The 90 and 9 are with dreams, content, but the hope of the world made new, is the hundredth man who is grimly bent on making those dreams come true. Any idea who might have said that, Rick? No clue. Okay, it was Edgar Allan Poe, uh, born January 19th, 1809, died October 7th, 1849. He was an American writer, editor, and literary critic. Uh, Poe is best known for his poetry and short stories, particular, particularly, God, I hate that word, his tales of mystery and the macabre. He is widely regarded as, the, as a central figure of romanticism in the United States and American literature as a whole, and he is one of the country's earliest practitioners of the short story. Poe is generally considered the inventor of the defect, not defective, detective fiction genre, and is further credited with contributing to the emerging genre of science fiction. He was the first well-known American writer to try to earn a living through writing alone, resulting in a financially difficult life and career. So, there you go. Uh, any last words of wisdom, Rick? Enjoy. 
Enjoy. I wish, you, I wish your wife luck with her container garden. All right. I will let her know that. All right. Uh, everybody out there, thanks for listening, and we will talk to you again next week.